Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series focusing on religion and politics. In this episode, Emily Judd interviews Reverend Jim Antle, a Christian leader and climate activist who is author of the book Climate Church, Climate World, How People of Faith Must Work for Change. Reverend Antle urges all religious leaders to preach about political issues, especially climate change. The, the most important thing is for clergy to preach about the climate crisis. He argues that spiritual and cultural transformations are necessary to combat the climate crisis. The main threats to the environment are not biodiversity loss, pollution, and climate change, as I once thought. They are selfishness and greed and pride. And Reverend Antle lays out the climate change response he would like to see from America's religious communities. We need to hold oil, coal, and gas companies legally and criminally responsible for three things. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Reverend Jim Antle. World leaders, intergovernmental organizations, scientists, activists, they're all trying to address the battle against climate change. But you say that religion— and religious leaders can offer inspiration to wider swaths of society than diplomats or activists can when it comes to this issue. What power does religion have in the fight against climate change? So addressing climate change, addressing the climate crisis, it requires systemic change. And systemic change involves a change in values, a change in morals. For example, Something I write about in my book, Climate Church, Climate World. All religions accept and promote the golden rule to love your neighbor as yourself. The climate crisis demands that we expand the golden rule to include future generations as our neighbors, what I refer to as golden rule 2.0. History shows that religion has the power to make this kind of shift, to promote this kind of systemic change. The abolition of slavery, the introduction of child labor laws, the civil rights movement, the promotion of LGBTQ rights, all of these systemic changes were championed by religious voices and leaders. You are a Christian leader yourself. You are a minister and you are a climate activist. And you've been arrested twice while protesting the Keystone XL transnational pipeline. What do you say to critics that say pastors should stay in the pulpit and stay out of politics? Well, now, this is a really important question, Emily. And for the record, I've been arrested over a dozen times, protesting pipelines and also advocating for new laws to protect God's creation. Let me begin by saying that almost every act Jesus did was political. That said, it is crucial for pastors to distinguish political engagement from partisan advocacy and to help their congregations make this distinction. When I was the head of the United Church of Christ for Massachusetts, I urged pastors to preach on how our faithfulness to Jesus demands that we address political topics from the pulpit and to be clear that in doing so, we must never be partisan. Here's an example. 
Addressing the climate emergency requires that we change laws. That's political. And using the pulpit to advocate for the passage of such laws is faithful. Assuring that the lives of our children are not overcome by waves of extinction caused by runaway climate tipping points is what it means to be a responsible parent and a faithful disciple. In 30 years, the world will likely be more religious and more environmentally at risk. According to the 2015 Pew Research Center prediction, the share of the world's population with a religious affiliation will rise from its current 84% to 87% by 2050. Also by 2050, global greenhouse gas emissions are projected to increase by 50%. What is the way to get religious people more engaged in climate justice? The, the most important thing is for clergy to preach about the climate crisis. Uh, climate scientist and evangelical Christian, Catherine Hayhoe, says the most important thing we can do is to talk about it. And, and as respected leaders and trusted leaders, clergy from the pulpit talking about climate change will help bring their congregation to do likewise in their personal lives and in their work life. And that's how things will begin to change. Another thing congregations need to do is to include in weekly worship ways for people to bear witness about the changes that they're making in their lives to engage the climate emergency. And that way, people in the pews will hear from one another how climate change is already prompting us to live lives in a different way. Clergy need to realize and to help their congregations realize what life will be like if and when the temperature rises as much as two degrees centigrade, not to mention if it rises three or four degrees centigrade. What do you say to skeptics that argue religion should not be used for political issues, including climate change? Well, you know, as I said earlier, um, I think if we simply look at the life of Jesus, we realize that um, time and time and time and time again, in all the various circumstances leading up to uh, Passion Week, and especially in Passion Week, almost everything he is addressing is a political issue at that moment. As he, as he confronts the occupiers, the Roman occupiers of the Holy Land. And, and so, you know, our issue, at least in the United States right now, is not about an occupation, but our issue is about our country being the foremost polluter, uh, if you look over all of history, the foremost polluter of carbon emissions um, in history over the past seven generations. And so it really is up to us from the pulpits of every denomination, every faith in our country to use all the moral leverage we have to engage people of faith to address this issue. At the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, what Christians called the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 2, it states that, quote, the Lord God took the man and settled him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. What are the biblical foundations in caring for the environment? So uh, 
Let me offer three, but before I do, let me also uh, be sure to refer people to uh, the encyclical that Pope Francis uh, wrote uh, a little over five years ago, Laudato Si, in which he provides all kinds of uh, biblical foundation for our response to the climate crisis. But, but from my point of view, let me, let me offer three. Uh, and, and they're sort of quick and easy and, and kind of obvious, I think. The first one is the beginning of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. And as the uh, ecumenical patriarch of the Orthodox Church worldwide says, it's not ours to wreck. The, the second one, as I've already uh, mentioned, is the golden rule, to love your neighbor as yourself. But we need to expand the golden rule to include future generations. And the third is, is, is this, is that both Hebrew scripture and the New Testament, they have more to say about collective salvation than they have to say about personal salvation. As I argue in my book, clergy should spend at least as much time from the pulpit focusing on our call to assure collective salvation as we focus on personal salvation. Thank you so much. I just want to quote one thing. I believe it's part of Laudato Si. It's a quote from Pope Francis that I think is really powerful. It says, Rivers do not drink their own water. Trees do not eat their own fruit. The sun does not shine on itself, and flowers do not spread their fragrance for themselves. Living for others is a rule of nature. We are all born to help each other. I'm so glad you added that quote. Uh, and, it's, and for those that haven't read Laudato Si, that, that beautiful quote is representative of the quality of those pages. There are numerous study guides available that can be used by both Catholics and Protestants, and for that matter, people of other faiths, Jews and Muslims, uh, in order to understand more deeply what Pope Francis uh, is, uh, is advocating. Now, Pope Francis has clearly used a theology that advances environmental issues and environmental awareness, but there is a certain interpretation of Christian theology that attributes current environmental disasters as signs of the apocalypse. The implication of this thinking is that humankind has no role at all to play in saving the planet and that climate change is not a result of human activity. It's basically all up to God and we as humans have no agency. How do you respond to that argument? So let me begin. This is another great, and, and it's an important question. Um, let me begin by pointing out that what apocalypse means is revelation. It means disclosure. And so we need to ask, what does the climate crisis reveal? What does it disclose? It reveals that humans are co-creators with God. It reveals that unlike the tens of thousands of generations of humans before us, over the past maybe seven generations, humanity has gained the capacity to impact all future generations. We can create for them a better future or we can wreck the earth. I'm reminded of a quote from my close friend, Gus Speth, who is the retired dean of the Yale School of the Environment. 
Here's the quote, and, and I could imagine every religious leader quoting this from the pulpit. I used to think that if we threw enough good science at the environmental problems, we could solve them. I was wrong. The main threats to the environment are not biodiversity loss, pollution, and climate change, as I once thought. They are selfishness and greed and pride. And for that, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. Drawing awareness about climate change is one thing, but ensuring that that awareness translates into action, that's a whole different story. And you say in your book titled Climate Change, Climate World, that our brains are not wired to respond appropriately to long-term threats like climate change. You pose the question, when will climate change feel urgent enough for us to act decisively? What are your thoughts on that question? Do you have an answer for that? When will humanity feel that climate change is urgent enough for us all to take action? So I, I published the book uh uh, a little over three years ago, um, in uh, February 2018. And uh, at that time, uh, it was still an open question. But uh, the summer after that, as many of you remember, Australia burned. And um, the past two summers, Siberia has burned. And the extreme weather events of the past year here, just in the United States, it's finally changed the conversation on this issue. People now realize from their first-hand experience, for example, ask anybody in uh, uh, Nashville or is it Memphis, Memphis, uh, Tennessee today, they, they, they had uh, 17 inches of rain in one night down there. And, and it's just devastating. So people are realizing from their firsthand experience what the IPCC report from the United Nations that was just released, what it's saying. And that is that climate change is fueling heat waves, intensifying droughts, stoking wildfire weather, and supercharging tropical cyclones and increasing rainfall with every storm, which of course increases coastal flooding. A recent poll from the Yale Program on Climate Communication, and I want to encourage everybody listening to us today to subscribe to, to their um, uh, almost weekly communications down, down there. That poll shows how significant these changes are. Since 2015, the percentage of Americans who are dismissive of climate change has shrunk from 10% down to only 8%, while the percentage of Americans who are alarmed has increased from 17% to 26%. So the alarmed outnumber the dismissives by more than three to one, although you'd never know that from our media coverage. We are now in a situation where our vote our, our generation has a vocation. Normally in religious circles, we think of vocation as something personal, but it turns out just as was the case in 1941, 
when the whoever was alive in 1941 all of a sudden realized they were being called into action. It's the same today. Our generation has a vocation to engage this issue with all of our gifts, with all of our abilities, with all of our assets, with all of our connections, to, to call in all of our chits. That's, that's, that's what God wants from us right now. Thank you so much for your answer. So under your direction, the United Church of Christ became the first U.S. religious organization to approve a plan to divest from fossil fuel companies. What would you like to see next from American religious communities in relation to climate change? So, uh, uh, you know, it would be easy to give a really long list in in response to this, but I'm actually going to focus on two things. Uh, and, and the first, the, the sort of obvious uh, answer to your, to your question is that I'd like to see all religious bodies divest of any stock holdings they have in fossil fuel corporations. Uh, there's a movement now called Stop the Money Pipeline. And, and Bill McKibben points out that money is the fuel on which the the climate crisis burns. Uh, so my first thing, and and the Pope agrees with me. The Pope has actually called for all Catholic institutions to divest from fossil fuel corporations, and the Ecumenical Patriarch, the head of the Orthodox Church worldwide. So I'm I'm in good standing uh, with the two of them. Now the second one, um, uh, I. I really appreciated this question because it gave me an opportunity to outline a few things. And it comes from my own background, having been a religious leader of uh, over 350 churches, and I had 900 clergy also uh, under my care. And and so kind of coming from that context, here's, here's my second response to your question. As Congress takes up the proposed massive climate legislation, just imagine with me that national denominational leaders engage in an unrelenting lobbying efforts in the nation's capital. A unified interfaith witness of nationally recognized religious leaders seeking the passage of new laws. And the new laws would accomplish the following. So this is the substance of what the religious leaders would be advocating for. First, keep all oil, coal, and gas in the ground. This would include, among other things, an immediate halt to the building of all new pipelines. Second, the passage of legislation that will force the oil and gas companies to pay for immediately plugging orphaned wells. So we currently have literally tens of thousands of wells emitting methane gas uh, throughout Texas, throughout uh, Wyoming. Biden's infrastructure plan includes $16 billion toward this end. That's not enough money. But it's the oil gas companies that should foot the bill, not the taxpayers. Next, electrify everything with an accelerated commitment, which could also result in full employment for that matter. Next, we need to shift our power grid to depend exclusively on wind, water, and and solar. We need to hold oil, coal, and gas companies legally and criminally 
responsible for three things. First, decades of misinformation campaigns and science denial. Second, knowingly making profits for their stockholders and executives while poisoning their investors along with everyone else. And third, human rights violations, especially in those communities of color that for decades have been treated as sacrifice zones. So just imagine an encampment of nationally recognized religious leaders in the halls of Congress insisting on these steps that will go a long way toward restoring God's creation and assuring that our children, grandchildren, and all future generations inherit a livable earth. Thank you so much for all of your thoughtful answers. I want to thank you for joining us today, especially for this conversation, which I believe is as important now as ever before. So thank you so much for joining the quadcast. Thank you.